Welcome to the Marketplace Midland podcast, where we highlight a monthly speaker that shares helpful tools for all of us to integrate timeless biblical principles into our modern businesses. It's a joy and an honor to get to present to this group so many mentors and people I've known for a long time and love and consider brothers in Christ and so many more of you that I'd like to get to know. But before I start, if you would bow with me in prayer. Dear Lord, may the words from my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Lord, please open up our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, and our bodies to act. We ask all this in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm kind of betwixt and between with that introduction, which was very generous. Uh, I told Kyle I was going to draw from my spiritual autobiography, which I had the blessing of drafting with Robert Winkler and some of my fellow elders at First Presbyterian Church. And it was a very moving experience, not only in drafting it and speaking it, but also hearing the autobiographies of my brothers and sisters in Christ at at the church. Um, And I had the joy of getting to present that to the Oilfield Christian Workers Group a couple of years ago. And so that was the basis. Though this morning I woke up with a different feeling. After having read that spiritual autobiography again, I thought how boring it was and self-serving it was. And so I kind of flipped things and I really wanted to cover three main topics. And that is the importance of prayer life, the importance of corporate worship, and the importance of the Great Commission of making disciples of men. So I'm going to stick with that theme and try and sprinkle some life experience in the middle of it. Uh, I, I wanted to share with you a joy I had this morning upon arriving at the COM, which some of you in the room know that I'd like to go there, Henry's annoying look from Henry Musselman. At 6.15 a.m., there was a shooting star that flew over the west horizon, and when it penetrated, it was white, bright white light. And when it penetrated the cloud layer, it turned blue. And at the moment, I wondered whether it was going to hit the earth and whether the second coming was upon us, but then I realized it was a shooting star that passed by. But the importance of it was a reminder of how amazing and infinite this universe that God created is. And yet, while we're so insignificant, he knows each of us as his own child. It's just, it's just startling when we, we as humans cannot comprehend the omnipotence and wisdom of our creator, not only our creator, but the creator of the universe. And in this day and age of, uh, of tweets and alarming media and Oscars and Hollywood, and uh, we have to be reminded of what God's intent was when he created this universe. And it's for us to love one another and to commune, not to be anxious, not to be isolated, not to be divided and to wag our finger and curse and spit at others, but to commune and to love one another. In any case, that was a a very moving experience I had this morning. I'd like to, uh, you know, when I prayed for God to give me his words today, as I was exchanging emails with Alyssa over the uh, weekend, it occurred to me that what is the best way to have God speak through me? And the best way is to recite his word. And that word is captured in the Bible. So I'd like to read, I'm gonna sprinkle a few verses uh, that are meaningful to me. And I'm gonna start with Philippians chapter four, verses four through eight, written by the apostle Paul, which reminds me that uh, the apostle Paul was of course, Saul of Tarsus, a uh, learned Jew, uh, scholar of the Torah, uh, a Roman citizen, and also someone who persecuted Christians. 
And it's a reminder that God can use any of us. If he could convert someone that was persecuting, that was an enemy of Christ, and convert him into someone that's had you know, universal and lasting impact by capturing the word of God and, and the Bible, it's a reminder that he can use us, each one of us. So let join with me here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There is so much packed into the, those four verses. I, the, I think there's four sermons in those four verses. Or, but the thing I want to point out, one is, is joy. We have so much joy in our lives, yet we grind through the daily life of you know, earning a paycheck, battling competition, battling uh, troubling wells or, uh, uh, or headlines or headwinds or taxes or what have you. But every day is a blessing and we should be joyful about our life. The other is one that I didn't appreciate as a child, not having a good uh, uh, role model parts of my life. My parents were divorced in Midland in the late 60s. Uh, and I went through some times of trying to search for what a man should be like. Fortunately, I had a great role model in my grandfather who was a, a godly man, a cotton farmer in Robstown, Texas, with whom I lived for about three years. Uh, and he was also a lay preacher, such a good lay preacher, they called him Preacher Paschal. And that was a compliment, not, uh, not derogatory. But he taught me what a godly man is like. He was gentle, he was kind, he was loving, and he was also very, very careful with his words, which stuck with me for a long time. Unfortunately, I'm much more wordy than he was. But the gentleness part, you know, after he died and I kind of wandered on my path of college and business, I adopted some role models that weren't so good, and they were tough. Tough people, tough people like Bill McCauley, who founded and ran First Reserve, who's a billionaire. Tough people like Jeff Skilling, for whom I worked, where they were abusive to others. They were tough in the sense of the way they treated people. They were tough in a business and competitive environment. And I also learned to be tough and thick skinned through all of that. And that's not what God wants from us. We, we alienate people, we move, we repel people when we are, are tough. So being a man doesn't mean being tough. Uh, anxious is another thing that uh, I'm seeing and hearing more and more, particularly from younger people. My daughter and son both suffer anxiety. My daughter's been on medication for that every, off and on, and they see therapists. And I hate to say this, I mean, therapists have their role, but the only therapist I ever needed through my life of wandering alone and through sin and, and joy was my Heavenly Father and my relationship with Jesus. But my solution when people say they're anxious or worried is, Take it to prayer. God can bear your burdens. He wants to bear your burdens. He wants your attention. He wants a relationship. And the way you get that relationship is prayer and petition. I, uh, as a young Christian, I heard a sermon once that talked about the structure of prayer and it stuck with me through my years. And I use it in my own personal prayer life. And that is first adoration. That is the specific acknowledgement of the beauty of God's creation, what he's done for us in a broad sense and his loving nature and acknowledging that. 
And related to that is thanksgiving, the specifics around the blessings that I've experienced day in and day out. The next is confession, and that is asking for forgiveness through the blood of Christ of our sins. And then the last one is supplication, which means your petitions, your requests of God, what you need help with. And what I'd say about that supplication, God can help you in decisions large and small. Um, he helps me on a daily basis, but that discipline, not unlike the discipline of working out, the discipline of feeding yourself, of drinking water is so important. And I think that prayer, starting the day with that prayer sets the tongue for the day. And then related to that, I think, is taking advantage of all the wonderful devotionals that are available to us now. One of my favorites is Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. It's always got two or three verses and then uh, uh, words that she's written that are almost meant to be God speaking to us, although I don't think there's any better way of God speaking to us than reading the written word. But that's, that's very helpful to me. Another is uh, a native Midlander, uh, well, native, uh, was the pastor of First Baptist Church. Jim Dennison has a blog. I enjoy Jim's blogs because he talks about daily events that might be troubling to people, but he addresses them in a biblical and godly context. And then there's First 15, which is his son, Craig Dennison, which some of you had the joy of hearing him speak at the prayer breakfast last month uh, or earlier this month. And Craig has a wonderful blog where he incorporates scripture. But seeing those things in the morning sets the day, sets the tone for the day. And for me, it makes all the difference between a good day focused on God versus a bad day focused on my woes or my you know, secular issues. As a child, after the divorce, I had a lot of uncertainty and, and drifting in my life. And I was an angry, insecure child and prone to temper tantrums. Although I was a uh, overly ambitious child, maybe it had something to do with my mother's being uh, uh, in education. Uh, or maybe it was just trying to win approval. Uh, I don't know. But thanks to my grandfather, I had a personal relationship with God and that carried the day for me. While I didn't always know where my next money was gonna come from my next you know, lunch in the cafeteria, whether it was a 10 cent tamale or a 20 cent chalupa in Robstown, Robstown as we called it, um, I knew that God was going to take care of me. Here's a verse that means, meant a lot to me and still means a lot to me. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And he had plans and those plans have come to pass and they're still coming to pass for me. And through that walk as a, as a teenager, I, through going to church, I learned the significance of the Holy Trinity and personalized it to me as follows. My heavenly father is my creator. He's my provider who has unlimited love for me. Jesus is my savior, my friend, my advocate, who washes away our sins when we simply ask. And the Holy Spirit inhabits me and comforts me and I carry, with him, carry him with me everywhere in my soul. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's how I think about the Holy Trinity. It's not some abstract concept, it's very real and personal to me. And it carried me through all the days of being alone, feeling alone, but I was never alone because I had Jesus alongside me and the Holy Spirit within me and my heavenly father above that I could call upon to help me in times of need. And he always came through, maybe not on my timeline, but he always came through. 
Now, none of this would have been possible without corporate worship, which is a fancy way of saying being active in a church. From Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day being the second coming. I think the importance of corporate worship, of being a member and an active member of a church is understated in today's society. While there are great resources online and in print, there's nothing like getting together with your brothers and sisters. So if you do go to church, don't be a spectator like I was for so many years where you go to church, you're entertained by the pastor in the choir and you sit in the back, you, you know, if, if, if you're good, you throw a check or cash into the collection plate. You've done your part for the week. You go to work and put on another suit of clothes and kind of put that behind you till next Sunday. You need to become a stockholder in your church. And what does that mean? That means volunteer to serve, answer the call to serve. And in doing so, you're going to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to get to know your church staff and the Lord better through that service. I can tell you the most meaningful growth and the breakthrough I had in my church involvement was at First Presbyterian answering the call to serve as a deacon. Now, as Kyle described, and as my other brother Kyle in the audience knows, I have a tendency not to say no to things. I get spread too thin and overcommitted and maybe don't do a good job. But and at first, when I got that call to be a deacon, I asked them the requirements and I said, oh, gee, I don't have time. I'm, you know, I'm helping Kyle and Carrie and Paul run a public company. How could I possibly do that? But on the other hand, you know, it's the first time I got the call and how could I say no to the church? That was the most meaningful experience getting to serve others alongside my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that was a three-year commitment. I had a year gap and then I got called to be an elder. And after the deacon experience, I was intrigued by the management and leadership of the church. And the Presbyterian church may be a little unique, maybe not unlike the churches you attend, but different than the Episcopal church, which has this governing body and this hierarchy that's more like BP than it is like uh, a church should be in my opinion. But in any case, the members of the church govern the church. And so the elders are the governing body. So that intrigued me. So I threw into to that effort and what a, what a rich experience it was. I got to serve alongside Robert Winkler as a trustee, which manages the financial, financial affairs of the church. And you get behind the curtain and you realize that the church is only as good as its membership. It's not a function of the uh, oratory skills of your pastor. It's really a function of the strength of the body, which is this skeleton, which enables the hands to serve as Jesus wants us to serve his children and those that are to be his children. So that was an invaluable experience, but it helped me also as a, as a financial guy and a numbers guy, understand that a church doesn't just run on love. It just doesn't get funded by a bunch of old people that are rich. It, it, it counts on everyone to contribute. One of the things that was startling to me was the statistics on giving. And, it, and I've compared notes with other financial people and other churches, and this is pretty consistent across the country and kind of surprising in Midland because we're such an affluent community. But in general, people under 50 aren't generous givers, if not tithers to the church. And in our case, over 90% of our money came from people 50 years and over, which is startling. And the only thing after discussing this with my brothers and sisters that I can figure out is that younger, the younger generation is more focused on very targeted specific giving or focused on meeting the mortgage, you know, putting away for education for their kids. But 
I cannot overemphasize the importance of giving from first fruits to strengthen the body of Christ because the hands can't serve if that skeleton and that core isn't fit. And it takes money to pay for the staff, for the programs in the church, for the missions that are outreach, for rent, for building upkeep. It just doesn't happen on their own. And the message that I've given to our church community is that once those 80 something year old people, which are giving a quarter of the money, graduate to eternity, somebody's got to pick up the baton or we're going to have to cut staff. We're going to have to cut missions and service to the community. And that's unacceptable. So I'm hopeful that the next generation picks up that call. I know it took a long time for me and I'm not, I was the same. I, I don't think I woke up to this fact till I was about 40 years old. So maybe I was 10 years ahead of some, but uh, it's so important to support your church. And the other thing I'd say about church is uh, with Midlands Affluence, uh, a lot of people have ranches, second homes. I, I can put myself in that category. Midland's gone a lot on the weekends. There are, there are times at church in the summer when you know, we normally have 200 people in service and there's, a, there's 60. Well, they're away. It might be a football game or it might be uh, some other reason. But when you're away and if you're away consistently to the same place, find a local church to attend. We've been so blessed. Our second home's in Telluride, Colorado. And that's where my son ended up going to high school for three years. And that's yet another story. But um, we have found a church home there. It's a non-denominational evangelical church. We recently, like many churches, went through a change in pastor in a very difficult time, a year and a half search. And the Lord sent us an amazing, amazing disciple, uh, a very passionate, Bible-minded, uh, I'll call him Bible scholar, a uh, guy with tattoos and just energy that's unbelievable. I mean, he runs circles around me. And what was interesting about that process of finding Pastor Michael, as we call him, is that we warned our candidates and we warned him specifically that the town of Telluride is about as secular, if not hostile to Christianity as it gets, unless you're in China and you get, per you get executed if you're a believer. Um, we can talk more about that later too, but we warned him. He said, you know what, I'm, I'm up for this challenge. He had been in, in uh, Colorado Springs. So he was, while well, Colorado Springs has, is kind of the center for uh, evangelical missions like Compassion International and others, a long list. Uh, there is an element of, uh, of, of hard hearts there, but until you're right, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, you're all familiar with the hostility toward the oil business these days. I just saw two films this past week that were very disturbing. One was called Blowout, and it uh, painted oil men as uh, cancer-causing agents. Um, and the other was uh, a movie called Iron Orchard, which is based on a book that a number of Midlanders and Austonian business people supported. And it uh, painted oil men as drunks and wife cheaters and uh, well, not wife beaters, but almost just total buffoons. Everyone in the movie was an alcoholic. It was incredibly disappointing and just reinforces the public's image of oil men. Um, but in any case, Telluride is a place where any expression of worship, much less any expression of fracking wells is, uh, is vilified. But anyway, we're making progress there. It's a vibrant community. And the point of all that is when you're away every weekend, don't use that as an excuse not to go to church, find a place to worship, and I think you'll be surprised what you might find in uh, a small town uh, like Telluride and bring yet another aspect to your uh, spiritual journey and also find people to mission and disciple, which is kind of the next phase of, of our life, my wife's and mine and Telluride are trying to reach out to young people that uh, are really frankly without hope unless we show them Jesus. And that takes me to the third and final phase of my talk and that is making disciples of men. 
The Great Commission, Matthew 28, chapters, verses 16 through 20. The 11, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And this is messages for us today. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So a question for us 2000 plus years later is, what does discipleship look like in this age? Well, this mission, the mission of this group and our founding partners here, Kyle and his and Steve and uh, Michael and the long list of, of wonderful men that have founded this is to carry Jesus into the workplace. And that's difficult. When I, even when I was with Arco, which was a wonderful company, wonderful godly people there that taught me good things about culture and respect for the individual that was later almost erased by other workplaces. It was frowned upon to pray, frowned upon to recruit or uh, disciple people. Fortunately, I worked in a place with the McGraw family and the Kerry Brown, Dale Brown family and saw that it can happen in the workplace. And we just took that, uh, knowingly took that risk with the blessing of some of our board members, Mr. Granberry was one of those, that we could bring Jesus into the workplace. But that also raises another risk. So if we pray in the workplace and yet later we're, we, we slip and we curse or we treat someone rudely, then what does that say to our employees, to those that are watching us? So it does elevate the risk. It's not to say that risk isn't worth taking, but it puts a higher degree of accountability on those of us that are leading that environment to watch our tongue, to watch our behavior, and to respect everyone, whether they're the night cleaning person or they're the executive vice president, and to treat them equally. The other thing I'd like to talk about related to making disciples of men is the mission field. So we have a mission field locally in our workplace, in our churches, in our schools, on the streets. And how do we reconcile that? There's great need locally. There's great amount of secular secularism in our in the United States now and not so much in Midland where we have a church on every corner and we can openly worship but other places urban centers I was talking to Chris Seegers about how secular Boston is despite its roots its uh, uh, religious roots at Harvard and Boston College they're now very secular if not multi-theistic but then how do we reconcile those efforts against the efforts abroad that uh, people like Robert Winkler and many of you in this room, Jared, Jared's wife has uh, gotten very excited about missions abroad. Why do we spend time and efforts abroad? And I think the answer is that, and it's a sad answer, uh, but we've got to carry both fronts. And fortunately we have people like John Mark Eccles here working with the least of these in our community to give them home and dignity and respect is that Abroad, there's a very ripe and fertile ground to recruit Christians. I uh, recently read and finished a book called The Insanity of God, which was not a very appealing title, but it was a book given to me by a missionary that uh, my wife and I, on a random hike in Colorado, met this couple and adopted them. And they were head of the uh, 
uh, campus crusade or campus, a Christian challenge group in University of Northern Colorado, but they had a calling to go to Central Asia, as they call it, also known as Afghanistan, to minister and, and hopefully convert Muslims. And not only that, they were newly married and they were hoping to have a family. Well, God did bless them now with two children and they are in Central Asia. They are in Afghanistan teaching English to Muslims and teaching them about Jesus along the way, which strikes me as incredibly dangerous. But anyway, Brandon gave me this book called Insanity of God, and it's written by a former missionary to Somalia. And he had a bitter failure, not unlike some of the failures I've had in business. Um, he not only failed to convert a whole lot of people, but many of whom he converted ended up giving their lives. Uh, he gave an example and the first part of the book is really disturbing and dark. And I was like, why did Brandon re recommend this book to me? It's really depressing, but where he went to a community, they brought food, they brought Bibles, and then they moved on. And then he heard that the entire community had been wiped out by the, the uh, military, just completely wiped out, no, no living people. He said, oh God, what, what, what have you done to me? Why, why are you not blessing my work? Anyway, he regrouped. His family was living in Kenya while he was in Somalia and uh, traveled the globe with his wife, interviewing persecuted Christians in places like China, in Russia, um, various places in Southeast Asia, and then also in some of the former Soviet republics like the Ukraine and Georgia. And what really struck him, of course, struck me was the thirst for Jesus in places like China, where people meet in, in groups of 15 in a household church kind of underground and there were countless stories of being discovered and in some ways they welcomed being discovered and thrown in jail because you know what the jails became their uh, their seminaries where they went to jail a, a chinese person went to jail and would learn from other believers who were more learned than them they'd get hands-on bibles in the in the jail and they would if they were lucky get released and then they would go back to being pastors so it's kind of interesting. The other thing that struck me in one gathering, which was like a revival setting in a, in a field and people were sleeping out in the field and there were just a few tents. And uh, Nick Ripkin, which is his pen name, was interviewing uh, Chinese Christians in a private room, just two or three at a time. And they came in and said, stop, you can't do this anymore. Oh, what did I do? He said, well, we want you out on the stage because all 170 of us wanna hear your interviews with these people. And what really struck Nick was the dedication, willingness to sacrifice their life to learn more about Christ. And they started asking him about Christianity in America and asked, and they're so removed from media, because of course the Chinese control media, that they had no idea whether there was Christianity in the United States. And so they asked him, about, well, what's the state of Christianity in the United States? He said, well, we get to worship freely. I've got seven translations of the Bible on my desk. Anybody can get a Bible. You can go to a motel room and get a Gideon's Bible. It's amazing. And they, they cried. They, they, as a group, they were, they were upset. I mean, they were, they were, one, thrilled that someone else had freedom to, to worship. But then they were like, God, why, why, why can't we have freedom to worship like them? But it was a reminder to me that we in the United States take for granted our religious freedom, our access to the Bible, our access to churches and other godly people. It's, it's, a, it's a great blessing, but it is under attack. And so we can't take it for granted. One, we can't take it for granted the rest of the world has what we have and we need to carry that to those places. And secondly, we have to watch, and I know a number of you are active politically, but we have to watch the creeping taking of our rights to worship our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's a blessing, it's a gift, and we can't take it for granted. Well, I guess the last thing I'd like to talk about is just what our blessings have now translated into to share God's blessings with others. So a number of you have come into wealth, uh, wealth events through sales of companies or uh, uh, just random gifts from above. In doing so, I encourage you to take advantage of the many options that are out there to give generously. One that the, the Browns and McGraws exposed me to was establishing a family foundation, which we did through Permian Basin Area Foundation. Uh, there's a number of excellent groups. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, in Colorado Springs, there's a group that I know the Browns are part of. I think it's called Water, not Watershed, but something like that. Waterstone, thank you that gives to Christian causes. PBAF is a wonderful group here that manages about 150 million of assets, primarily focused in the Midland Odessa community. Um, anyway, it's a tax efficient way and I don't think God begrudges us for being tax efficient with his uh, gifts so that we can give more to his causes. Uh, but what we've done in addition to giving to our churches, Alpine Chapel and First Presbyterian is we've been blessed in meeting what I call spiritual entrepreneurs. John Mark Eccles is one of those. There's uh, uh, Paul Talley's not with us today. He's another one that fits in that category. And they are people that have given up careers to pursue what they believe is God's calling to serve his children and to make disciples of men. So I wanted to list a few of those that were meaningful to us that we support financially and spiritually and in and, and prayer and in person. Uh, one that uh, helped write my uh, drift off the playing field, so to speak, was Fellowship of Christian Athletes. There was a uh, young man who happened to be my sister's, my older sister's boyfriend, Jim Rockmore, who went on to play football for LSU, who was the uh, huddle leader in Baytown, who reached out to me and pulled me up from the pit and continued to follow me as I drifted. My father passed away when I was 18 and in college, I certainly did things I'm not proud of and Jim helped uh, keep me from uh, getting too deep in the pit. Jim went on to, uh, uh, work as an engineer, but then answered God's call and joined FCA. He's been there more than 20 years and now he runs the Latin American operation. So I get to support Jim and, and watch his efforts in converting young athletes who know nothing about Christ to uh, informed and believers. Uh, the other area that I had the joy of working with Eric Boyd and Jared Blong is bringing FCA back to the Permian Basin. It was astounding to me. Jared, that we didn't have a leader here in Midland, and thank, thankfully we do now, thanks to your efforts and Eric's and many others. Uh, I mentioned Brandon and Kate Witzkin, who are over in Afghanistan. I, my wife and I tried to talk them out of it, but the Lord has put his uh, shield of protection over he and Kate and their two toddlers, and uh, they're entering their final year of three-year commitment there. And the stories that they tell of uh, ministering to Muslims is just amazing to me, and how welcome they've been in that community is is unbelievable. Another one that's a, a new effort here, Paul Talley has uh, acquired and merged with uh, Glorietta Christian Camps near Santa Fe and has Wilderness Trek. It's off and running and I know Paul's making the rounds to get funding to make that happen. Uh, he's got about $150,000 a year funding gap, but it'll be self-sustaining in the next couple of years. One a couple that you all have met that it's, it's such an amazing story. I go to church with Ramon and Bob Bilheimer and Ramon and Bob had been going to uh, Uganda for uh, mission work. And one day Ramon had a message and a vision from God that give my children fresh water. And Ramon and Bob have uh, caused the drilling of over 500 water wells in Africa. And we got to support them on that. 
Another effort, I mentioned a, a section mate of mine at Harvard Business School now runs Compassion International. We were introduced to Compassion International back in uh, about 15 years ago, and we've been supporting a young girl, Geneva Centano, who was three when we started, and now she's 19 or 20, and now she's uh, training to become a teacher in the Philippines. It's remarkable. It's just a monthly gift of $38 has enabled her education all the way through to now college. Um, a number of uh, uh, you were in attendance a couple of months ago, and Dave Eubank, who's uh, a warrior for God, stood here. He's got Free Burma Rangers, which ministers to refugees and those that are oppressed and have not only threats to their lives, bullets in their bodies on occasion, as he told us. I've gotten to know Dave personally. I know a number of you have met him and broken bread with Dave, and uh, he's, he's a warrior. One of these days, I'm going to join him. Uh, somewhere abroad, he serves refugees and uh, uh, persecuted people in Syria, uh, Iraq, and Myanmar, among other countries, Bangladesh. Um, a few years ago through First Presbyterian, there's kind of a recurring theme here. It's been a uh, conduit to meet amazing uh, spiritual entrepreneurs. Was a 22-year-old victim of uh, prostitution. Her parents sold her into... Uh, slavery, and um, she managed to pull herself out of that. Her name is Fa. She has Grow, G-R-O-W, and now she has a compound that ministers and, and serves almost 50 children. And initially, she had six children that would climb on the back of her bike in a crummy apartment, and now at five, probably 10 years later, Robert, she's now got this amazing compound that people in the U.S. funded to serve children that have been sold into uh, slavery. Um, and then around town, look, this, this community is the most generous community I've ever been associated with, which is why I decided to stick here after living in 14 cities and 28 homes. At some point, uh, watching the model of the McGraws and Browns, I've stuck my stake here, and, and we've been fortunate to be able to support uh, things that serve God's children, our, our county hospital, Midland Memorial Hospital, the Trinity School, uh, First Presbyterian Church, and a host of other things that, uh, that benefit this community. And let's face it, um, a number of you are familiar now with uh, Priority Midland. You're familiar with the uh, strains that this blessing of the oil boom has created on this community. And so there's a big call for investment in our public schools, in our healthcare delivery, in our roads, and we're all gonna be called upon to help direct those monies, whether it's from our tax revenues or from foundations or from our own pockets, uh, where best to invest to improve this place that we call home. Well, it's a rambling uh, description of uh, the things that I felt called to speak to you about, the importance of prayer life, the importance of corporate worship, the importance of making disciples of men. I'd like to close with a scripture that means a whole lot to me. Um, so Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that's a remarkable statement. God has prepared for us in, prepared in advance for us to do. All we have to do is answer the call. He's got the preparation. All we have to do is ask for his help, for his direction and be open-minded. I can say that for most of my life, I was incredibly self-centered. I had tunnel vision over a goal. It was a goal that I was fortunate to 
achieve at age 33, starting and running my own oil company. It was great for a couple of years. It was so exciting. It was intoxicating. I kind of forgot my faith, although I was going to church every Sunday. I forgot from whom my provision came. I almost forgot my family, not that I was out uh, uh, in, at night drinking and running around bars and things. I was actually married to my work, so I had a mistress. It was just called work. But I got so far off track. Uh, I, I can't say that God lowered the price of oil just to get me back in line, but uh, 1998 came along. Mike Eastman remembers how painful that was. And in Midland, I think you could hear a pin drop in the petroleum club in 98, 99. This place was dying on the vine. And I had to sell the company I started. It had 2,000 net barrels of oil a day, about $6 a barrel lifting costs. Not that that matters a lot, although the price of oil got down to seven at the wellhead in 98 at one point. And sold it for $28 million. It was a failed sale at $45 million. And the owner, uh, Macaulay, said, told Albrecht, said, look, you know, we, I've got two old funds. I need to close them out so I can raise my next fund. And the world of private equity is all about turning over funds because you make all your money on management fees and sometimes on back ends, as we call them. So anyway, Bob said, OK, I can get this thing sold and called his buddy and pitched it out the back door for $28 million, which was heartbreak. Now, we paid off our debt. But I lost money. I lost money for the investors. It's my first company. It was a bitter failure. And I was a failure. And I had to pick myself up off the ground and come back to the Lord because I, I did not know I did not know where I was going next. And he opened a door for me. It was an interesting door, but that would be a subject for another time. Uh, but in any case, the Lord, time and again in my sordid career. I've had a lot of jobs, as you can see. I've sold myself out of jobs. In other cases, I've been merged out. In other cases, I found myself in a place like Enron or, or Wall Street that just wasn't the right place for me. And my advice to you younger guys about that is when you get in a place that just doesn't feel right and their way of doing business is different than yours and their value system is different, don't wait around. Don't, don't walk out of that door, run out of that door. And both of those places, I spent a year there and Fortunately, in my case, the Lord opened other doors that were obvious that I needed to walk through, although I turned down one of those jobs. But then two months later, uh, came to the realization after meeting with Skilling that it was time to get out of Enron, May 31st of 2001. Six weeks later, the guy who hired me took his own life. And six months after I left, the company filed for bankruptcy. So that was a godsend. And you know what? The door, opened, the door that God opened to me was here in Midland, Texas, with godly men like Ben Strickling and Larry Oldham and a couple of guys from Abilene. They're just princes, uh, Joe Ed Cannon and Tucker Bridwell. And that, that was such a turnaround for me. I'm so forever grateful that they opened up that door and they brought me in under their wing and taught me what godly men will do. And the other thing that happened to me, and this is my last comment, is I got into CBS after we sold the company and I was put in a small group by the Lord among spiritual giants. One's here, Bill Granberry. The other two are people that uh, many of you in my generation know, uh, Tevis Hurd and Jim Also. And I was so in awe of these godly men and it came such a good time in my life to see them model the gentleness, the love that even impressive guys like them could have for unimportant people like me and their embracing of the word, how important that was. So that. Bill, you probably don't know how big a difference that made on mine. That was just a bump in uh, a, a change in trajectory in my spiritual path that um, I, I can never repay. Anyway, thank you for listening. I look forward to questions uh, when that time comes.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Marketplace Midland podcast. 